0: Programming Throwdown, episode 111 Real Time Data Streaming
1: with Frank McSherry. Take it away, Jason.
0: Hey, everybody. So, this is uh, going to be a really, really interesting episode. A lot of folks are interested in big data. Big data is Still hugely, hugely important. Um, it's still growing at like a really, really fast pace. There's so many companies that are figuring out how to manage a lot of information that is, you know, coming through and how to harness that and how to use it to make better products. And so we're here to talk with uh, Frank McSherry, who's the co-founder of Materialize, who's going to really kind of walk us through, you know, really what is real time data streaming how that works under the hood and um you know how everyone else can kind of get their hands on this tech so thanks a lot for uh, coming on the show frank
1: oh it's not a not a problem at all it's my pleasure
0: cool so how are you handling the uh covid situation the work from home how has it kind of changed uh you know your your day to day
1: yeah well, it's it's maybe unsurprising it's changed everyone's uh day to day pretty substantially mm-hmm. uh, we went from being a uh group of people who are basically all in the same uh, room, more or less. You know, we had a sort of 16 person office that everyone showed up and worked and you know, had a certain collaboration style and that sort of pivoted 100, 180 degrees to everyone is somewhere else. And, yeah, you know, it's in some ways good. Like from my point of view, we need to be a lot more thoughtful about our communication and our processes and stuff like that. You can't just yell at someone to try to figure out how a thing works. You have to ideally write it down and and everyone can see at that point and I know, but like super, super disruptive. Yeah.
0: Have you, how do you handle uh, um, that situation where someone needs to ask for help? I found this is a real challenge with our team is it used to be you kind of just yell and whoever, uh, someone will just, you know, kind of jump in. But now it's like, if you post to the chat, it's kind of a little bit more disruptive. And there's this kind of Mexican standoff among all the folks in the chat, like who's going to answer this. And uh, yeah, I was wondering, how, how do you deal with that?
1: It's, you're right. It's, it's definitely a little tricky. I, I think at the moment, at least we're still, you know, things are changing, of course, but we're, we're small enough that there's still some sort of sense of ownership for who is, who is in charge of, of a certain thing. And that person might not be looking at the moment, but there isn't, there aren't a bunch of people saying, Oh, not me. I didn't do it generally. Uh, there are enough folks who are interested in sort of the health of the code and stuff like that, that someone will, will pipe up and say like, I thought it, I thought it was this or here's a PR that, that looks relevant. Maybe that's where the problem is.
0: Yeah. It makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. I think, uh, I've been telling folks to try to do point to point. Like it's, it, it might be easier to message one person and that person tell you go some, like, like it's actually this other person. Um, then you message the group because you end up in this situation where uh, potentially maybe no one answers and, and everyone's kind of looking at each other. But, but yeah, I, I think that all of these things and, and whiteboarding is another thing that I've found to be a real challenge, but you know, all these things I think we'll, we'll be able to make, you know, we'll be able to sort of make progress in these areas. It's just going to take time.
1: Yeah, no. It makes it very clear that this is, uh, for for me at least, for sure, this was an underappreciated aspect of uh, how, how do you get work done. You know, we we can certainly we're, we're you know faking it a little bit now in terms of figuring out the right ways to communicate, but clearly, you know, people who are good at remote first, for example, it's it's impressive that you know, like, oh wow, you know, you must have some great processes in place, uh, or just fundamentally different ones, but but clearly more robust to you know someone isn't available for a little while or. Uh, you know, yeah, someone someone's sick or something like that and they're just out for a bit. Can your org uh, resist that? It's, yeah. Yeah, it's neat stuff. And I hadn't, I hadn't really thought very hard about this at all beforehand. And...
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's wild how how it just kind of happened right away. I mean, I still actually have, um, you know, a bunch of little tokens and picture frames and stuff at my desk, I think. I mean, I don't even know if someone cleaned them off or not, but, but you know, it's just one day we were told not to go into work. And so it's just kind of like, I wonder if it's just if it's just a snapshot of March, twenty twenty over there. I mean, I, I don't. I can't even get in the building, so I don't know.
1: We had that for a bit. We had someone go in. We we were at a a we work essentially, and our our lease was up at some time in June or so. We had some folks go in and basically put things in boxes and put uh, addresses on them and ship them. So you, you got like a, essentially a care package, which was this was the stuff that was on your desk, which is oh, like nice. a, bit, a bit like. Well, it's nice to have, but it's also a bit weird um, to to think like basically just been moved out or something
0: but yeah it's, all, yeah, it's totally. very
1: emotionally jarring a lot of the stuff i'm sure for, for, for many people for many different reasons but that's also been yeah. a, a big problem i would say like there's a the mechanical aspect of writing code and building a business but mm-hmm. it's also just a big emotional attacks on a lot of folks who are trying to get their head around the world being different and and stuff like that
0: yeah yeah totally makes sense so um so let's rewind from from the you know, materialize in the in the we work and let's kind of start from the beginning and, and kind of what's your backstory and what kind of led to you uh co-founding materialize
1: yeah okay well it goes back a ways I, I tell me if uh no that's too far uh, speed it up
0: uh, no but- go for it i mean you could say you know first there was the womb and then <laughs> so- yeah
1: yeah no i think like in terms of formative moments you went to, went to grad school, got a standard computer science education, went went to grad school, which is maybe a little less standard and did some, some great work with, I, th- I thought great work with Anna Carlin, who's this person who works at these are sort of intersection of theory and, and systems work and got a little bit of a taste for both, you know, thinking about things for long enough that they make sense, but also trying to get your head on whether the thing that you've thought about should actually be turned into something that computers do. It um, actually results in something meaningful and, and, uh, of consequence. Uh, from there, I went uh, to actually start working at Microsoft's research lab in Silicon Valley, which was there for, you know, it was like 12 years or something like this. Uh, and lots of great people. This is very formative. This is a lot of uh, really interesting combination of theoretical computer scientists and people working on systems, in principle, distributed systems, but computer yep. systems. And a great place to really um, learn a lot. Like the people there were very strong. And you learn a lot both about the actual technical bits of computer science, but also you know, how to think about about research, how to do things of consequence. Uh, you're relieved a bit from a bunch of the academic pressures of publishing at a, a very fast cadence. You sort of wait until you've actually got the thing that you think is right before telling people about it.
0: Yeah, were you there when MSR in uh, in Silicon Valley closed down? I was. Oh uh, man, that that broke my heart. I mean, I read about it in the news, and 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 as being in another tech company, we were constantly reaching out to folks to try to try to hire them, but that was just unbelievable.
1: It was it was very surprising at the time. I mean, to be to be honest, I have sort of mixed emotions about it in that I'm totally happy. I have to be careful framing this, but like it was a very comfortable place. And I do kind of like the idea that folks get moved out of their comfort zone occasionally and have to go and do new and interesting and different things. And I was very happy that I was moved out of my comfort zone because I feel like the time after that was, uh, for me at least, was very good. Uh, I got to do new things, think about new stuff, try uh, different uh, ways of the world that I wouldn't have bothered to do if I had if that had still been around. I would have just stayed there for another twelve years on autopilot, writing papers, doing things. So I'm I'm personally glad that I got uh, shaken up a bit uh, by that, though I'm, I have lots of colleagues who weren't nearly as glad. But um...
0: yeah, I mean, I was in a similar position where I was had a job that uh, was you know very it was a very comfortable job, and I was getting kind of good ratings and. Um, and I, I had a, in this case, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, I chose to take this opportunity, but I was always kind of, you're always kind of really nervous leaving your comfort zone because you feel like, oh, I can never really go back and, and, uh, you know, and kind of taking this big risk. Um, but you know, there's two things that I, that I kind of learned from, from my experience and I'd love to hear what you learned from yours for, for mine. I learned one is that no matter how kind of much time and energy you've put, and how much you're a part of the process at your current company, that when you leave, everyone else just picks up the slack. And like you know, you, you I, I actually thought that is the team was going to struggle a lot more than they actually did. They were just fine. Uh, and the other thing is going the other direction. You know, you can always go back, and uh, people, you know, the, if you tell your boss you're leaving and why you're leaving, and you know, provide it's on good terms and everything, um, they're always happy to welcome you back. And so both of those made me feel a lot better. Um, now, obviously, in the MSR case, there was a going back, but 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 you know, I know from someone who saw that from another company that there's there's always really good opportunities for for you know good people who work hard.
1: I think that's totally right. I mean, our, that was my experience as well. Which is that me- mechanically, it would have been difficult to go back to Microsoft at the time based on how things happened. But if you're you know if you're good at what you do or close enough, um, there there's lots of opportunities out there for a lot of different folks. Um, this, this shows up a bunch uh, to be totally honest in the startup space as well where we uh, just at materialized continually have these conversations with people we're trying to you know trying to recruit great people uh, who have a cushy job somewhere and are a bit worried about the risk right uh, the risk of like well do I want to leave my job to do something that's a little riskier uh, what happens if uh, in the worst case scenario and uh, the answer is, is usually well the worst case scenario is you just can go back to your existing job or or something similar it's not like they're not going to be uh, at your at your throat just because you wanted to go off and do something interesting generally they're super welcome to either have you back or you know doing a similar thing at a, at a different company if for any particular reason your opportunity is gone so it's it's a thing that you don't I, I certainly didn't think of ahead of time I uh, thought like wow it's really comfortable here and and indeed if I go somewhere else it's going to be tricky to,
0: to get this again and it doesn't it's not necessarily the case yeah that makes sense I, I've heard that in the startup world you know there's yeah it's a really good point in the startup, world, there's a sense less protection, like for example, if you're at a startup and the startup pivots and they just don't need your particular skill anymore, then you could you know be let go for that. Whereas if you're in some giant company, there's almost like uh always some place you can go or they'll give you time to retool and so that can make people nervous, but the same thing still applies that 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 there's always kind of uh, you know a ton of demand there, and so if you find some startup that's doing something you're really passionate about, you know you can you can join it with with confidence.
1: I think that's right. I mean, that, that's certainly been what I've seen, and I, I that might be coming from a position of privilege for sure. But uh, it's certainly the case that although a startup might yeah, do something surprising, and you decide you don't like them anymore, or, or maybe it just doesn't fit, and uh, that's bad news. The, the larger world is at the moment still really excited for computer scientists, especially ones who are doing bold, innovative startup-y things. Uh, usually companies are pretty happy to uh, get in touch and find something for you to do.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So you were at MSR, and then did you go from there to another big company, or did you jump straight into startup world?
1: Yeah, no. Um. I, actually, what I did is I hadn't taken any vacation in the 12 years I had been at Microsoft. No vacation of consequence. What? Wait, no way. I, yeah. Are you serious? Um, I had taken one, like, a, a year or two before. I took about three weeks off. But other than that, it was all you know, visit folks for, for the holidays type things. Um, no no particular vacations of consequence, yeah.
0: Did your vacation accumulate? How did that work? Is there a limit? I mean,
1: it's it's California, so they're not allowed to... It's, you know, it builds up, but it maxes out at some, you know, six weeks or something like that. And, and so
0: you just had maxed out. You're just you're just uh, shedding vacation days for, for years. That's wild. I mean, you must be really passionate about what you're doing. No,
1: I mean, yeah, maybe, but no. It was I just that it was... <laughs>
0: I you know I certainly hadn't
1: uh, at that point in my life come across you know, like building up a good work-life balance and you know sustainability and stuff like that. It it just
0: yeah actually that, we should do a show on that. Maybe we'll invite you. We'll invite you to talk about uh, about work. Oh, I don't think that, people want my advice. That's actually something yeah. <laughs> we never we never covered that. And you know now that you mention it, that's so so important. It could easily be a whole hour. But
1: uh... this past year has made that really clear. I think like a lot of we've had a lot of folks at the company that. You know, just getting wound up and stressed for non-standard reasons, right? Like th- not things you would have anticipated, not things you sort of put on your calendar as make sure to to unwind. And it's been really important for us to try to pay attention, remind people that like you should absolutely think about taking time off. Don't sweat the fact that, like you can't go to an island somewhere and and drink uh, you know bright colored drinks. Yeah, but take some time to just yeah, reset. Yeah, you
0: know. Uh... I get these automated emails from uh, when people get close to their limit on on PTO, um, and uh, you know, usually, I mean, I've never even—I don't think I've ever seen them before. But now everyone is at their limit, and and I think you, you hit the nail on the head. People say, "Well, you know, I don't want to go on PTO if I'm just gonna have to stay around the house," but then they're completely burnt out, and so you almost have to kind of force people and say, "Look, you need to spend a week." just sitting around your house doing nothing like you just have to because you are just flipping out over stuff that doesn't matter and and uh it's yes yeah, this is an incredibly difficult time for that
1: so so you had asked uh what did you do after microsoft and and that was the segue into here but the, what happened essentially was i i concluded i should take some vacation and vanish yeah. to uh to morocco for a little bit for some surfing, uh, surfing oh, cool. and yoga stuff like that and just chilling out it was actually this really pleasant it was uh even with the surfing and the like, three meals a day and yoga, it was a rent reduction from San Francisco, so that was yeah, that was pretty sweet. And just started doing a bit more of like lo-fi living, I guess, like not worrying quite so. You know, I had a laptop, had one suitcase that was everything that I uh, uh, that I owned pretty much, and sort of wandered a bit around. I had some work obligations in Europe. Like I had agreed to chair uh, some workshops and. So you know, did a little bit of work, but mostly just uh, slumming around, doing doing some work on the side, but at my own pace.
0: Yeah, that's that's super nice. I I don't know if you know uh, Richard Stallman's kind of like lifestyle, but this is this is uh, sounds a lot like I interviewed Richard Stallman a while ago, and uh, yeah, he he basically uh, uh, you know goes conference to conference, you know gives talks, and he asks you know can I sleep on your couch. He has this he has this this email thread like list surf type thing of all the couches he can sleep on oh, dear, and he just goes from place to place meeting new people and it sounds like a really, really kind of exciting you know kind of life where it's it's exciting, but it's also chill, which is kind of hard to get yeah. it's
1: um uh it it definitely was interesting like so some of the some of the time I was going uh yes yeah, there's of course some just hanging out and surfing and Rocco type things, but there's also dropping in on the people doing Apache Flink in Berlin and dropping in. Uh, at Cambridge in the UK to work with them for a few weeks. And then eventually it turns out dropping in on uh, ETH in Zurich, which happened to be doing a bunch of related work uh, stuff, work on data flow processing. They they were looking at building systems that would essentially take the exhaust out of data centers. So whatever is happening in your data center, not not the actual work that's going on, but what messages are getting sent around, who's communicating with whom, what what was going on between your various racks. And feed that into some sort of analysis uh, subsystem that they were trying to build. And uh, just as, as a technical segue, this is, this is a moment where they were they were struggling to make, for example, Spark work. Uh, they had gotten Naiad, which is what we had done at MSR, up and working, but they're on Linux, and the uh, uh, C sharp support on Linux at the time was not was not stellar. Yeah. So uh, the, the guy in, in charge, Matthew uh, Roscoe, basically said, "Look, why don't you just show up?" and help us sort this out because this sounds like it's exactly what you've been claiming uh your stuff is good at and we could really use it and we can pay you and you're in europe so like and switzerland's nice so uh so go for it so that, that led to some recurring collaboration with them uh, So of worked there for about seven months and then so just so I understand,
0: so you got Spark to work or you got this thing from Microsoft to
1: oh, work? I did Oh, I didn't get anything to work. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I, they, <laughs> okay. they were already trying to, uh, they knew what they wanted to build, essentially, like sorts of analysis they wanted to do. And they had tried to do that with Spark. And Spark, unfortunately, at the time was just falling behind. It couldn't keep up with the data volumes. Um, ah, I see. The the work from Microsoft Research, this, the stuff that led into this real-time streaming work, timely data flow, uh, stuff like that, was originally at Microsoft. This project called NIAD that was a C sharp project and it worked great on Windows, and worked on 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 Linux. But um,
0: how do you spell that? N y a d. Oh no, n a
1: i a d, oh NIAD Okay, it's it's Greek. It's the NIADs were these the animating spirits of rivers and streams and flowing water. And
0: oh, that makes sense. There was a a big data project called Dryad.
1: Yep, the same same group of people.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, so is Dryad like an evolution
1: of Niagara, no, or the other way other way around? Though evolution is maybe a bit strong. So, so Dryad certainly came first. Um, dryad sort of came came to be after MapReduce rose in popularity, and Dryad essentially said, why not think about larger data flow graphs, but still use roughly the same same principles. So, Dryads are the animating spirits of sort of trees and and forests. Which, yep, yep. Uh, is where that came from, building sort of DAGs of of data flow graphs, but it's still very much in the spirit of, of batch computation. So this data flow graph runs by looking at its inputs, which are probably very large data sets, turning on the bits of work nearest those data sets, running them to completion. They produce output data, you start up the next people.
0: Yeah, so I mean, maybe just to give a bit of context, a bit of context here, like, uh, you know, people know about, let's say, um, it's a good example here, Um, like MP3s, where, you know, you have to kind of encode something in an MP3, and so, you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily have some incremental MP3. Like most MP3s are, you know, there's there's some sort of bookkeeping and some stuff built into the file, and um, you know it might be random access, but there's usually some kind of paging. So it's not totally random access, and so you end up with like this kind of big volume that's effectively immutable. If you want to mutate it, then you would run it through a process that produces another big volume that's slightly different. And so this is kind of the essence of 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 MapReduce or of, of let's say batch batch processing. So you know you 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 can take this, you can break it up based on how the data is chunked. So let's say the data is is, is separated in chunks such that you have you know, a thousand chunks. And at most you can have a thousand machines um, uh, you're reading in a chunk, doing something to it and then emitting um another another set of chunks. Um, now those chunks get, you know, shuffled. That's a shuffle part of MapReduce. And then the shuffled chunks uh, end up in buckets. And then those buckets can be processed a second time. And the output of all of this is just another huge batch of data. Uh, you know, Spark and other things are kind of built on the idea of MapReduce. And there's a lot of also cosmetic things built on MapReduce. Like there's Apache Crunch, which was kind of a, you know, something that sat on top of MapReduce and just made it more accessible. Um, but one thing that's not really clear is how do you handle like a fire hose? Like if you have something that's ge- a machine that's generating logs incrementally, you know, one a second or something, well, then this idea kind of doesn't fit that paradigm. And that's where the real-time streaming is really important. Yeah.
1: And actually your example of MP3s is is pretty good. I, I don't want to pretend to know a great deal about how MP3s are, are encoded, but you could totally imagine like we, we've been talking now for, you know, almost, uh, almost half an hour. And we could record all of that and plop it down in a file and then have someone pick that up and start the encoding process. But it's just as reasonable to imagine that as we've been producing data, someone could be picking that data up and start the process of transforming it and encoding it. So that by the time we're done, uh, the computation is also pretty nearly done and ready to ready to disseminate. Or for example, if people were listening, they could in near real time be picking up the output uh, of the encoding process, something more efficient than just the raw wave file, uh, and not have to wait for the entire session to be sort of recorded and then processed and then uploaded and all these things. So, uh, a lot of the streaming is—it's one of the things that's cool about streaming. I suppose in a lot of cases, it's the same computation as these batch computations. It's just done uh, staged slightly differently. So instead of doing all of that first work at once and waiting until you're done, yeah, you can start the first step, uh, whatever that happens to be. And start producing partial results and then whatever the second step is that can also start working at the same time and you just sort of keep things busy uh, where they'd otherwise be waiting so otherwise everyone's just waiting for that first hour of data to be finished before they can even start working and rather than do that no you just get everything going all at once and it's a bit more bookkeeping for sure but the nice thing i think is that from the potentially from the user's point of view. Uh, they don't need to think of new idioms necessarily. The system itself can just change its behavior and it it just is suddenly a bit more responsive than it was uh, previously. You, haven't, you don't need to educate the, the user to tell them you must write a new program. Uh, so that's potentially really powerful if, if you can uh, harness people's mental model for how do I approach working with big data and not have to change uh, that to be some new, totally different way of working with data.
0: Yeah, it totally makes sense. I think that Um, Yeah, streaming from a functionality standpoint is like a superset, right? Because you can always stream in a batch of data. Um, But then in terms of what you can do, I'm sure there's some limits. Like you don't have random access to the entire data set all the time. And so, um, you know, there's some things that you can't do with streaming. Um, Or if you you are going to do them, you have to accumulate some kind of uh, uh, bookkeeping versus just doing it in one shot. Um, yeah, I think the closest I've come to data streaming is, or or, or with the issues, let's say I, I can imagine coming up with data streaming is through Presto. So Presto is this SQL engine. It's not for real time, but it's it's uh, it keeps everything in memory, and so because of that, it's really fast. But because of that, as soon as you run out of memory, it's it just gives up. And so, for example, if you wanted to, um, if you have a giant database. It doesn't even matter the size, and you want to just see how many times your name shows up in the database. Presto can do that because it can read uh, as little as one row at a time, look for your name, and then just keep a count. But if you wanted to do something like uh, generate a histogram of names, then, um, or or maybe a better example is if you wanted to join the table to itself so that all of the rows for the same name were grouped together. Well, then Presto has to keep the entire database in memory, in some way, shape, or form, to do that self join, and and most likely Presto will just blow up. And so, you know, you, you kind of the same limitations there kind of apply here, where you know you don't want to be in a situation where you need the entire dataset, uh, you know, at one time.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Um, the, one of the things I suppose that streaming does is start to expose uh, expose some limitations essentially. Uh, you can, as, as you say, like if you can look at a batch computation just as a streaming computation. right? of course, the uh, the process reading the data off of uh, HDFS or off of your disk or whatever is not loading it atomically uh, in, into memory. It's, it's looking sequentially, at, or most likely, at the data. So it's sort of streaming in off of, of your hardware. So it's, it's a type of streaming computation already. But as soon as you give people streaming systems and tell them Ooh, low latency, you know, something, something, something. Uh, they, they start to believe that they start to use it and they start to be surprised if yeah, if their computer catches on fire when you do something like this. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, that makes sense. So, so, so NIAID, so we're starting to see how uh, materialize got materialized, right? So, so, so you, you were working with uh, uh, ETH on, on NIAID. Um, um, you're helping them kind of with that. And uh, did you kind of see a lot of the issues that, that, led you to, uh, to uh, work, uh, you know, start Materialize?
1: Um, a, a little bit. not. I wouldn't say uh, directly, no. Let's see. So I'm just, just going to roll back the, the clock just a little bit so that I, sure. I avoid tripping myself up in the future. Um, one of the things that happened <laughs> okay. as, I, as I departed Microsoft Research is that uh, we were no longer meant to be affiliated with Microsoft. You know, We were no longer, uh, in particular, no longer working on the NIAID code base. And it felt like a good time to pick up a new new programming language. Uh, so I, I pivoted over from C-sharp to, to Rust at the time and started essentially doing a reboot of that project. So a different version of, of Nyad that was you know, fixed some of the issues that we had the first time around and almost certainly you know, didn't quite get as far in all the dimensions. But started being what is now this timely data flow uh, in Rust project, which uh, is actually what, what I went to ETH with and worked with them uh, on there. Ah, cool. I would say that at ETH, this is an academic setting and you have a lot more liberties. So one of the big distinctions between academia and materialize we'll get to, but um, in academia, you have a lot more liberty to just do what you want and what you need. Uh, So in a sense, what they were working on there, um, they they were acting as sort of the consumer of the technology. So they could just build bespoke pieces uh, of technology that would just work because they're you know, as, as a bunch of computer science PhD people, they're all empowered to just write a whole pile of new code and say like, great, works for us, ship it. Um, yep. And yep. Materialize, by contrast, is very much the opposite. It's um, like we, the people building Materialize, have these skills, but the goal is to target people, users um, who don't want to have to get an advanced education in streaming data flow infrastructure or anything like that. The goal is very much to uh, take the ideas, the, the things that were learned along the way, essentially, and try to map them to concepts and, and idioms that a lot more people are already familiar with. In the case of materialized, that's, that's SQL, uh, which is a, you know, a language that doesn't say anything about streaming or, or any of that stuff, but does have sufficient concepts, things like joins and views and indexes and reductions that you can allow people to express, uh, express queries and, and ideas in that programming language and then transport them. Uh, you know, we do the hard work to do this, but transport them to streaming infrastructure.
0: Oh, interesting! That makes a ton of sense. The uh, uh, yeah, how there's that uh, there's a lot to unpack there. So, so yeah, I guess I'm, since we're we're on that topic, how do you prevent people from doing things in SQL that would just cause a lot of Harper and like trying to join a table to itself, for example?
1: Yeah, so uh, we don't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, I think that's sort of fair to say. Like the it feels a little bit like databases back from the '90s or something like that, where you could with a crappy query uh, take down you know your production database. If if you go and try to do something that's a cross join uh, or something like that,
0: um, yeah, that makes sense. But with you know with the right window size, um, I don't know if that's in ANSI SQL or if it's only in Presto. But um, yeah, there's this there's this whole we have this thing where we do a self join, but um, you know the where clause is is such that we can do it within a window. Like if we sort, basically sort the database. Uh, although sorting, I think, in streaming would also be a challenge. It, yeah, yes, some is. of these yeah. joins, I think. Uh, but I think the streaming doesn't have to do everything. It just has to do some of the things that that need to be done in real time. And so it's a good complement to something like Presto or Spark.
1: Yeah. So, f- for example, you brought up like one of the main pain points, to be honest, with uh, SQL streaming, which is window functions in SQL. Uh, and for folks not familiar, window functions in SQL are roughly a way to write in SQL the equivalent of a for loop. Um, yeah, it's just sort of you can say put these records together, and now attach to each record its ordinal position in this list, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, whatever. And you can write queries that are really problematic. Like you could say, yeah, I do this, and then get me all of the odd records out. And uh, that that's a query you can write it. It's a little a little mysterious, but you can totally write this. And it's very problematic if someone adds one record uh, to the beginning of this list, right? Because all of the answers yeah, change yeah. Um, and not just slightly change. You know, The, the entire set of data flip-flops uh, each time you add one new record. And, and just very problematic uh, in terms of performance and resources uh, for that query. And it's a good question. Should you work hard to prevent people from writing these queries? Should you let them write them and learn that that the performance isn't good. Um, some some of the queries are fine, right? If, if instead of saying, you know, give me uh, every odd versus even records, you say, just give me the top five. Ah, it doesn't flip-flop nearly as much. You know, like you, know, you can add one record and worst you can do is bump someone out of the top five. But uh, it's, it's uh, a great question. And really, this is the heart of what a lot of the big data problems out there have been. How do I figure out how to present an API to users that... Um, these are sort of like handles to scissors like how, how do you pre- present handles that you can grab safely you don't grab the the cutting part of the scissors you only grab the safe part so you, it's a tool that you can pick up and only use safely how do you how do you do that like like we, we know how to give people access to uh you know computers from uh from ec2 you can just check them out write whatever code you want and you know, cause the computers to be arbitrarily problematic that's easy like we know how to give people access to computers how do you give them gloves that they can wear to access the computers safely and effectively. And sometimes that means telling people, no, that's, and that's sort of where this, the essence of a lot of these big data design questions are, is like, how do you prevent people from, um, you know, I guess, give them enough rope to be useful, but not so much that they can uh, get themselves into trouble.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, it's it's, yeah, I think over time you build this kind of mental model of what kind of works well with what engine. Um, it's like for example, like sorting. Sorting is almost never a good idea in Presto because as soon as you want to sort, then you never know if, as you said, a record's going to come that needs to belong in the first position. Like the very last record you look at could actually be the first record when it's sorted. And so the only way to sort is to hold everything in memory. Right? So so now with with Spark, for example, sorting is not an issue because it spills the disk. And so Spark will basically, imagine you have a huge database you want to sort by one column, Spark will effectively you know, create a file for, uh, let's say each letter. So the A file, the B, it's kind of like what you would do if you were sorting a list of folders is you'd have an A group, a B group, a C group, so on and so forth. And then Spark could just sort the A group And, and you, you know, you don't have to do it by the first letter. You could even do it by the first two letters, three letters. And so you could always find a way to do it in Spark where it will be, you know, fast and efficient. And uh, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head that it's like very hard to kind of, you know, kind of like encode that knowledge. It's almost kind of like you know, you can go to Home Depot and buy a saw, you can't really buy a saw that won't cut your thumb off. Like they just, they haven't invented that yet and they probably never will. And so it's really about how do you um, let people experience, you know, materialize or Presto or Spark in a way where they make mistakes, but they don't kind of blow up the system or cut their thumb off. Right.
1: Yep. No, you're absolutely right. Um, one of the things that's a bit tricky with materialize, I suppose, is that Whereas folks have this expectation with a lot of big data tools that you might cut your thumb off, or that you know you should not randomly do things on your prod cluster. For example, um, the database community has, with their products, have have gotten pretty solid about trying to bulletproof a lot of the the tools there, so that you can't quite as easily catch your system on fire. If, if some person shows up, you know they have, they have quotas in place. They have um, you know ways to protect uh, queries from interfering in each other. So the expectations are a bit higher with that with that crowd, actually. So this is definitely one of the slightly awkward moments is that the, the prospects are showing up are like, well, I you know, I expect to be able to have twenty people use this and not get in each other's way. Uh, what's your story? And we you know, we sort of have to come back with, well, our story is big data sort of side of the story, which is that if you if you really need these people to be isolated from each other, you should probably turn on a few separate copies of materialize. And it's it's not as exciting an answer as as they are hoping for for sure. But it's realistic at least at the moment.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I think uh the way we do it at my company is there's uh there's like a presto uh a quota, probably same thing for Spark. There's like quotas. Um, and uh and so if you maximize the like let in, in theory, the worst case scenario is where you get as close as possible to what you exceed the quota, the job dies. So that's actually not that big a deal. But it's if you're right at the quota for a really long time and if a bunch of people are doing that, then things can start to get um, get really bogged down, but that should be super, super rare because uh, no one. It's hard to really design something like like you can't really optimize your query so that you're just under the quota. So.
1: Yeah, no, I mean you're totally right. And there's other if people did, um, there's some clever things. You know, you can totally randomize the quotas a little bit to make sure that. Oh <laughs> yeah,
0: just introduce white noise in the quota. It's,
1: you know, harmless, just plus or minus a little, bit enough that no one can actually sniff out where is that that boundary yeah. that I can safely operate on.
0: Yeah, that's funny. Um, okay, cool. So, so, yeah. So we kind of geeked. actually one thing about and we'll, we'll go back to the background. Is it is it ANSI SQL or or have you added things to SQL? Yeah, the,
1: the target is ANSI SQL. Um, we were very uh, very cognizant of the fact that with with SQL the language, there's a bit of an uncanny valley where if you are in fact SQL com- compliant, great. People can use you. Tools can use you. Uh, so a lot of people's tooling uses SQL. Um, if you're only 90% SQL compatible, uh, things catch on fire pretty quick, right? <laughs> right, like you can demo. Yeah, yeah. Here's a join and a reduction. And you're like, oh, that's great, join and reduction. Pretty happy with that. Uh, but as soon as people realize that maybe you've got different semantics for nulls in some places, or maybe you don't know, do a great job at multi-way joins, or you know, support prepared statements, or various things like this, you know, your tools start to fall apart. Um, things that used to get correct answers suddenly get mysterious. Glitches in them, and the, although you thought ninety oh, percent compatible, the, the actual usefulness of the SQL uh, is is closer to zero at that point. So we, we've cleaved very strongly to to ANSI SQL. Uh, we have uh, there's a, a SQL uh, SQLite has a I don't know five million query test battery that we're uh, in total compliance with at the moment. All sorts of
0: oh wow really cool. obscene
1: cases like things that you wouldn't I I would never have thought someone would write these queries. You, know, you can write. Correlated subqueries in the join condition of uh, outer join, and, uh, it, and it, it was some pain to uh, to get those to be correct and, and correct in a streaming fashion. Um, but uh, it makes a lot of sense. Like it's it's very sensible to try to do SQL right if you're going to do it. Um, we've not really added too much. There are a few, I would say, interesting interpretations that we've done of things. Um, they're they're a bit technical. I'm happy to go into them, but they're sort of they're things that don't really make it quite as much sense in a standard database, uh, but have really cool interpretations in the streaming space.
0: Yeah, I mean, what's a what's an example of something that of one of those? things? Yeah, so like one of the things that so in a standard SQL database you can
1: use. Um, I'm going to lie a little bit here, but you can use the now function to get the current time for uh, when your query is being being run, which I don't know, you know, you might do to print out along with your results. When did a thing actually happen? when well, you know, something like that. And that's, that's fine. That's like, that's a good use of, of now. Um, you can do something really interesting though in materialize, which is to put that now term in a, in a predicate, like in, in a where clause. So you can say like where my data dot timestamp greater than now. Um, and what that does oh, is holds back the data until, uh, the current time is equal to whatever value is seen in your data, right? So uh, since since we're evolving the results of this, this query over time, it's going to give essentially a, a temporal instruction to the system that says, this, here's an interesting record, don't show it to anyone until the time that is written down in this piece of data. And it allows you to start programming with time and stuff like that in a way that, yeah, I, you, know, you could write that query in vanilla SQL that just does one-off queries and gives you the answer. But it introduced some really interesting new behavior in uh, a streaming system that is going to update the data over time.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean, as soon as you introduce something like that, then you can't really throw any data out because you just don't know when it could become relevant, right?
1: Yeah, though, though delightfully, right? You can use this exact same query to say where uh, my data.timestamp, I, I think it's, uh, less than now? Well, the, the other direction, the other inequality direction. Yeah, right? sure. It eventually says like, throw my data away as soon as this time passes, right?
0: Oh, like, that makes sense. This record
1: will never pass this predicate again, because we know that now only goes up, and you had some piece of data that you know, we've now we've now passed. So this is actually a way to give, uh, in, in your query, to describe what data are okay to garbage collect and, and clean up. So that you can keep a you know, if you wanted to have, for example, a one hour window that you're maintaining that slides continually uh, through time, you could totally say, you know, blah, blah, select all the records, where um, now between my data uh, dot timestamp and my data dot timestamp plus one hour. And that will wait until that time to introduce the data and one hour later, clean up the record, throw it away, you'll have a constant memory footprint uh, over time. And just stuff like that, that again, if if you're thinking about, no, I'm just going to use real data, like a data warehouse, you've got to plop all your data in there. And it's got to look at all your data over and over again, because, you know, who knows what's going on in there. By giving clearer instructions to the stream processor, we actually can learn a bit more about what do you really need to keep around? Like what data can we throw away? And how can we, you know, more efficiently operate to keep your query up to date?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So what about, you know, one of the things that I was really excited to see Spark 3.0 add is is the um the sort of um array uh, aggregation and all of that. So like you can, for example, yeah, you know, there's an array column type, which is in um, you know, in in Hive and, and SQL, but not but not in ANSI SQL. And th- that array data type ends up being super, super useful. Like you might say, take all the records with this person's name and build an array. Of of uh, I don't know all the the ages a person said they were, and then let's analyze that distribution or something. And so that that seems to be the thing that I miss the most. Whenever I'm using something like SQLite, I always kind of miss you know array ag and map ag and some of these functions.
1: Yeah, this, uh, we have several of these. I don't want to. I, I get myself in, tied up a little when I try to distinguish all. Them. There, there's arrays and there are lists, and there's a little bit of a difference because Postgres has. We, we're, we're basically following a lot of, of Postgres. There's some distinctions between the raggedness of arrays versus multi-dimensional arrays, and it's, it's it hurts my head to try to keep all of these straight. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, there's. Uh, I'm thinking of what we have literally at the moment. And we literally have. A, a JSONB aggregation that allows you to to do these groupings and then pack them into a common JSON object. Um, if we don't have an array aggregation, it seems like the sort of thing that's super easy to add. But yeah, the functionality. I guess we've we've generalized it a little bit. Um, I, I think we've not invented too many things of our own. Uh, I want to be careful, but but we have when you look at the what folks come to us with, like they show up with Avro data and Avro, you know, can represent some some quirky things in it, and we got to figure out like. Someone showed up with some Avro data. We need to make sure that the type system is rich enough to reveal the various things that people might have shown up with uh, for data, and that includes various various forms of arrays and stuff like that 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 aren't as commonly seen in uh, in SQL.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so we got to ETH Zurich. We went back a little bit to talk about NIAID, and so yeah, uh, let, let's uh, sort of continue the story there. I mean. Did, was Materialize created while you were on uh, this road trip, or was it like conceptualized while you were on this road trip?
1: So I think the right way to frame it is that Materialize was conceptualized by uh, my co-founder, Arjun Narayan, who uh, was working at, at Cockroach, uh, Cockroach Labs at the time. Um, and he had, uh, during the course of his, his PhD, been working in the same sort of area, um, big data systems, stuff like that, and had...
0: Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but DB is like a key value store, right? Like a big data key yeah, value
1: rough, store? Yeah, roughly. I mean, it's, it's more of a transaction processing, like OLTP-style system than an analytic ah, okay. processor. And this makes a bit of sense, to be honest. Like they were, I, I, I would say, I'm not an expert here, but they were good at what they were doing, uh, which is storing data, keeping data you know, consistent, all these sorts of things. Um, and we're sniffing around for like, well, what's the right way to process all this data? Right? It's, it's sort of silly to do all this and dump it out to HDFS and call into Spark or something like that. And Arjun's take, at least, I hope I'm not misrepresenting him, was that the the Nyad paper, uh, the thing that came out of Microsoft Research, was a great answer to all of this. Right? It sort of resolved a lot of the, uh, the quirks that stream processing systems had at the time, and that this would make a lot of sense for anyone who uses a transaction processor to keep uh, the primary source of truth for their data, but wants to attach to it some analytics that will continually, you know, be able to ask questions and also keep keep answers up to date for questions you've already asked. So I would say he he uh, and and potentially collaborators at, at Cockroach, but he was the one who was pushing forward on the idea that this is really interesting technology and there's actually a pain point that people have out there, where uh, you know you can use a data warehouse for sure and just ask questions over and over again, but there are a lot of people who have uh, relatively fewer questions. I suppose they want to see the, the answers to their queries refreshed as quickly as possible, always up to date. And ideally, this shouldn't have to mean that you have to go back to the data warehouse once a second and reissue the query from scratch. So uh, he was the one who showed up, I would say, with the, like, let's actually do something specific here. Uh, his pitch to me was roughly like, we, we, sorry, we knew each other uh, from before, but but his pitch with respect to the company was, it's super interesting, like all the, the stuff in Rust that you're building, and you write a bunch of fun blog posts. But if you actually want to see if this has has legs, if this can actually go anywhere, uh, there are going to be annoying things that you don't want to have to do. You, you, someone's got the right documentation. People are going to have to do, you know, write tests. People are going to have to go and shake hands with potential customers and stuff like that. And uh, that's not what you want to do in your day-to-day. I and mean, you're totally right. Uh, but the, the right vehicle to, to do this was to put together you know, a company, basically. Put together something that has some funding so that you can pay people to put together marketing information, to put together documentation websites. Um, you know, write tests, write? SQL compatibility uh, layers, stuff like that.
0: yeah, that this touches on a really, really good point. I think there is this kind of misconception that a startup company is you know like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in their garage, just just writing you know building a, a bunch of systems, um or just you know one person in their garage. but 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 you're you're totally right that you need to have sort of sales. you need to have people writing documentation. Um, you need to have that whole ecosystem right at the beginning. And uh, yeah, and I, I, I see a lot of people who have some really good technology, um, but I think they kind of missed that part of it, that you need to have that, that, that whole part of it. And we talked a little bit about this um, in uh, the last episode about Docker. And I don't want to beat up on Docker again, but, but your Docker has amazing technology But then on the business side, you know, there were some real challenges. So it's really important to kind of have a person who's really plugged into that, who can help out with all of that.
1: You know, I definitely found this to be the case. I I imagine in in most startups, these roles exist, whether you like them or not, of course, you know, someone to do community management or tech support or these things. And and presumably in in most very small startups, uh, everyone just wears five different hats and you probably do a little bit less good of a job than if you got in a, a specialist to, to do a thing. And so part of, I mean, part of what was compelling, I suppose, about Argent's proposal is like, this is good enough stuff that we can get some funding and actually get people who are good at these jobs and like doing them rather than have to slog through uh, the unpleasantness of doing them ourselves necessarily.
0: Yeah, makes sense. And so so did you go straight from ETH to materialize or was there something in between?
1: Oh, it, 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 yeah, sorry. There's There's a bunch of time dilation that went on uh, and I was I was at okay. ETH twice actually. I was there for seven months the first time, and you know, having having done the thing that I thought I was there to do, went off and tootled around a bit more, a uh, bit more in Europe. It just happened to be where I was and did some more surfing and just relaxing. And uh, eventually, I ended up going back to ETH um, for a little over a year, uh, and was a bit more you know formally there at the time. You know, I was working with students, advising folks. Uh, so, sort of helping some folks see through their their PhD dissertations, but then you know it became clear that um, that was not for me forever, and that Materialize made sort of a lot more sense. And the, the second time there uh, was uh, d- departed, I would say uh, it's early 2019, roughly, and landed in the U.S. And uh, at that point, Materialize had, had already been started up. Essentially, Arjun and I had chatted about it beforehand and thrown some decks around. But uh, but yeah, I came back from, from Switzerland and was employee, I think number five. I guess that materialized at that point.
0: Cool. So what was it like to, um you know talk to investors? I mean, that's you know, so I also you know have an academic background and 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 since uh, going to university, I've really only worked in research labs. and so, uh, you know, you kind of share that background at least up to eth. And so what was it like going from that to you know, creating a pitch deck talking to investors and and you know what was that transition yeah. like
1: uh it was I and mean, for me at least it was very surprising um the the thing that was surprising is i think we, we went through uh, about a week of of pitching stuff in in the valley and each meeting that we went into i went in with some preconceptions and came out with exactly the opposite conclusion basically about what i had expected and,
0: and <laughs> like that, like what's an example of that no i mean just like we went in
1: I don't know, The very first thing we went into, we were like, oh, this is great. You know, we're, we're pretty solid. The the deck looks pretty good. And came out of that, and there's a lot more skepticism about things than, than we had realized. Not of the type. Like, you know, no one doubted the technology or anything like that. They, they were like less sure about how big the market was, for example. I'm like, geez, I didn't even thought of that. Um, oh, that makes sense. We went into the second meeting, and I was pretty sure that ahead of time, um, the, the person uh, that we were going to chat was already invested in, in what was essentially a competitor. And um, we're basically thinking like, oh, I guess we're, we're in deep trouble and like, this isn't going to work out. We can just sort of warn them and, and go home and they are immediately like, no, no, I'm interested. I'm very interested. Were
0: you afraid of even giving the pitch, you know, because, because, uh, you know, if they're already invested in your competitor?
1: Not, not really. I mean, I think one of the nice things about materialize that's very reassuring is that nothing we're doing is secret. So it's not that there's some cunning information that if anyone got access to it, they would suddenly have a big advantage uh over us the the main advantage that we have is the technology that we're using is um pretty cutting edge i would say i mean that, that's self-serving but
0: yeah uh, makes sense. that's
1: the main thing that distinguishes us and it's not trivial for anyone else to say like oh i see we should just use the same technology and we'll be where they are so we weren't too worried at least i wasn't too worried about showing up and saying hey we're looking we're going to do a thing this is the thing we're going to do uh keep it a secret and, like i don't i don't think anything that we were talking about was particularly secretive. So no, I, I wasn't, wasn't too worried about that. Uh, maybe I should have been, I don't know. I'm hopelessly naive when it comes to some of these things.
0: No, I mean, I think, it, I think what you said really resonates. I mean, I think you to replicate it, they have to really replicate your whole history. Um, it's not good enough just to take, take a snapshot of, of um, you know, what you're thinking right now. You have to, it's not Markovian, right? Like it's, it's kind of based on your trajectory is kind of based on your all of your experiences and you can't easily transfer that. it's
1: no, totally true. So, so for example, one of the things that we've we've had to do and has, has been like, like some of the value that's been added at materialized is trying to figure out how to take a bunch of these crazy SQL idioms and map them down to, to data flow computation. So when someone uh, has a correlated subquery, someone's got to figure out how to turn that into to data flow computation. And that, that's not explained anywhere else, right? That's not a thing that exists in the open source software that I had previously written. So it was very much a bet on the, like the team will be able to figure this out was, was the bet that the VCs were making. Not that the software already does it, but that there will be some some problems that'll be faced, but these people are well prepared to get clear those hurdles, essentially.
0: That makes sense. And so this this investor was super interested. And then did did you kind of, uh, what was that conversation like where at some point you had to kind of talk about the elephant in the room, right? Which is that they're kind of double dipping oh yeah they were very
1: kind of yeah they, they were very clear and, and it was that you know th- their responsibility like they have some responsibility of course to the people that they're invested in but they also have responsibility to the people who' invested in their in their funds and as long as they're not in conflict I think this person's particular take was like as long as it's not zero sum right if it's if all the money that you would make would come at the expense of these other people uh, that's no good like that that's not a thing that they can
0: uh, yeah they can good.
1: But if investing in two people who happen to be sharing, you know, a, a pie in, in the course of that, the pie is actually, uh, let's say, fifty uh, percent bigger than it initially was. Then, you know, okay, if company one doesn't get all the money in the world. Uh, companies one and two have to share it. But it's it's in this case much better for their uh, the investors in the fund that the VC is managing. I, I have to imagine also that there's different takes on this, right, that across the the spectrum of, of VCs. You know, some people are perhaps a bit more Kind and gentle, maybe, and some people are more vicious and, and, uh, you know, trying to get access to whatever money is that they can get. I have, I have no idea. I definitely don't want to, want to judge there, but, uh,
0: yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, this is just one, 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 uh, meeting, but I think, uh, yeah, it's really, it's an interesting, you know, um, kind of dichotomy because on one side, yeah, I think it, you hit the nail on the head, it really depends on is the pie growing. So if there's, if there's a thousand customers, and uh, the startups uh, you know, are only able to sort of acquire one at a time, then, and, and you know that there's a whole ecosystem full of startups out there, then yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense to have at least two of them, maybe even more. When things get big and it becomes like an Uber Lyft type thing, there's actually this podcast that I follow called Business Wars that talks about um, you know, when companies get so big that they basically exhaust the market and then they go to war with each other. Um, and, and, uh, it's, it's a fascinating podcast, but, but yeah, I think that is maybe, you know, it, it, if you're, if you're, uh, if materialize is like competing with, you know, the, the next biggest player, uh, you know, and both companies are, you know, dominating the world together, then that's, that's not a bad position to be in. If you're an investor, it's like, okay, I'll take that. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, you're not. You're not wrong. And each of the participants, you know, materialize, and, and the other person would would really love that if the other person would sort of, you know, not not be there, or which their lives would be a lot easier. But you know, from the investor's point of view, presumably, no, this is great. Like both of you are going to make better products. Um, uh, you know, both of you are going to compete to be price competitive. Uh, uh I'm sorry, I'm, I'm making up a bunch of economic stuff. I have no no actual background here, but I, I can imagine a world yeah, it where uh, where it's it's not inappropriate to. Uh, uh, you know, support folks who are, yeah, e- again, eating more of the pie as opposed to trying to fight over the same piece of pie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, so, okay. You start up materialize You're employee, number five. Um, and you know, you are, you have this sort of academic background. I'm assuming there are a mixture of people who are, you know, really into the theory and, and, um, you know, handling a lot of these edge cases and 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 you know, doing a lot of these this really complex transformation of of SQL to you know your engine. Um, and then there are a lot of I guess uh, you know front end engineers and there's there's a whole engineering area. How do those two areas kind of collaborate?
1: It's a great question. Um, it took I, like I think the, the short version is that the the folks are really interested in the theory, like the the me type people needed to adapt a little bit. And this is mostly because uh, when you look at it, what materialize actually needs to do, the goal isn't specifically to advance some very cunning theory and, and to be really smart and write obnoxious blog posts. You know, it's it's actually to do a specific, <laughs> right? And if you look at, you know, if, if the folks, generally speaking, the, the engineering side of the house of materialize is a bit more eyes on the prize about like, you know, we need to actually make this work. That's the actual goal. The goal is you know, okay the friends made along the way that's also it's also very good but the reason that we're here is to try to put together a thing that looks and and behaves a lot like in this case Postgres um, you know complies with, with SQL, and and under the covers does it all very efficiently hopefully uh, things like that and that's actually the goal so uh, you know folks should in some sense should, should get in line and uh, do that that sort of work and I remember when I showed up, I was very initially very like, "Oh, this is exhausting." SQL has so many so many warts. Uh, it's just it's gross in a few different ways. Do we have to do this? And you know, at the time, I was, oh, maybe you know, I, I was thinking maybe we don't. You know, we we could do some funny business somewhere. And the answer was pretty clear: No, no. <laughs> like, it's really important to do SQL correctly. That may suck. Um, I'm sorry, but. The thing that we're making makes sense if we do SQL correctly and not and not otherwise. So let's figure out how to do that.
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking from the other side of the table, there's something that wasn't ANSI SQL. I'm trying to remember. I think it was maybe like uh, like Hive. Yeah, Hive. So Hive isn't an ANSI SQL. And so uh, you know, just converting queries from Presto to Hive or from you know testing them locally on a on SQL and converting them to Hive, like it's never a straight conversion. It's always a huge pain. And you're always kind of wondering, like, why didn't they just take the extra step? Now, I mean, Hive, I think, that whole Hadoop ecosystem was filling such a huge void that they had a lot of latitude in terms of the product. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, Hive was replaced by by Presto and Spark and things that were um, more compliant. So, so, I mean, even then, I mean, it didn't last. It was just a honeymoon phase, right? But, but yeah, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, if it if, if, you know, especially if you're at a bigger company, if you have, you know, 20,000 queries that you run and you push them to materialize and like 100 of them fail, you know, for one person who's trying out a new product, that's insurmountable to try to fix 100 queries. It's usually uh, really ugly fixes 100 times. And so it kind of can't be 99% done. It has to be 100% for, for you to really uh, get those customers. Yeah,
1: that's absolutely correct. And it, again, one of the one of the changes, I guess, coming from the academic space is like in the academic world, it's it's a bit introspective there. You're like, I, my goal is to think of a clever thing and then tell the world about it. Whereas on uh, the business, you know, the sort of real world side of the things, your goal is to meet the potential users where they are, right? Like you want to get some technology to them that they can pick up immediately and start working with. And they're more and more delighted the less they have to screw around with it or figure out. Or, you know, if their life is now fixing these 100 queries uh, as people write new ones. That's terrible. I mean, that's, you know, that's not the thing that they were hoping it was going to be. And you, you get to notice this a bit more as you show up. And I mean, I was learning this at least coming from academia, where you get rewarded for being clever and different uh, to, to a space where you, absolutely the goal is to try to be as not different as possible. Ideally, not have to tell anyone about your cleverness. They just sort of experience that your product is, for whatever reason, much more pleasant to use than the competition.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And so, in terms of customer acquisition, is is your is your is Materialize's style kind of like a bottom up thing where you have a free tier and you try and get you know developers to convince their manager or director to to you know jump on board, or is it more of like an enterprise thing where you go and make a pitch to? Uh, to the leadership? Like what what's the kind of model for materialize?
1: It's a good question. Um I, I probably gonna script the answer to this because they're very like sort of clear takes on on each of these things. Um my experience uh, with with materialize has been that the person the people that we end up trying to convince uh materialize is good have so far been not not strictly the bottom up like just random developer trying to get a thing done, but maybe like a tier up from that. So a person who's trying to think about like how should I organize uh, infrastructure for my group or something like that. Or like, I need to support a few people, uh, various various uh, people writing SQL queries. How should I go about doing that? And that, this person has some latitude to uh, make a good decision or bad decision, but they're sort of their decision-making type of person rather than a person who can pull whatever they want onto their laptop and start using it. At the same time, we're not uh, sort of going over and scheduling meetings with Coca-Cola to try to tell them like, you know, please, please stop using big competition and start using us instead. You know business 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 handshakes martinis <laughs> I, I would say the motion is, is a bit more bottom-up in the sense that it's, it's technology led um, folks are meant to understand uh, the users are meant to understand that this is a valuable thing to do that they like the experience more uh, low latency responses to queries are better as opposed to a more top-down like your organization will be better cheaper whatever if you pivot over to materialize um, that might also be true but it's harder to harder to put that in front of people at the moment
0: yeah I think anything having to do with you know data, you know anything having to do with data will require you to be a step up from the developer because it's not something you can run on the cloud. Like people aren't going to just move all their data to some kind of public cloud that materialize has access to. and so and so something has to be I'm assuming something has to be kind of done where materialize is kind of plugged into whatever, you know, their their data system. I mean it might be on AWS, but it's obviously not gonna be something that's exposed to the public.
1: Yeah. Though I should say to take this opportunity to, to to throw out there that, that materialized cloud has just entered private beta. Folks, folks go oh nice materialized.com slash cloud and uh, hop onto the the sign up list there were, you know folks are being admitted in waves but uh, you know, the intent is for sure to try to put together a thing that where an organization can try this out, it, you know, we'll, we'll deploy inside your, your private cloud in, in AWS. But if you've got your data uh, in you know, in Kafka or something like that, we can attach a materialized instance to it and start reading it and give you, you know, like 30 seconds or something like that, uh, an interactive experience where you get to see what it's like to to start using this, maybe start to make some decisions about is this, you loving this or is it is it uh, the same problems as before?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. But but insofar as like, it is kind of a bigger commitment than trying out a different ID, for example. And so insofar as that's true, like I would say from what you described, Materialize is, is sort of bottom up at the lowest level that you, you can reach and still get the kind of commitment that you need to set up.
1: It's, it's You're right that it's more sophisticated than... Just getting a new a new ID or a new a new theme for VS Code or something like this for sure. We've tried to make it not terrible from the point of view of an incremental deployment. So for for example, you know, step one is not reformat all of your data into our native representation or something like that. Like we'll look at uh you know, your Kafka uh, topics, pull data out of there that you know could be CSV formatted, could be Avro or JSON, you know, various various things. Uh, hopefully the, the ways you've already written your data down so that we're not actually introducing any new new costs for you um so it's not as bad like you know for sure other other systems out there step one is okay we need to pivot all of your data in hdfs into a columnar representation because that's the only way we work efficiently so like one week later you can actually try running one of these uh, yeah yeah exactly uh sort of grindy uh olapi style uh, analytics tools
0: that makes sense so you're kind of plugged into um kafka and i think the amazon is like i want to say it's kinesis Kinesis something? is another
1: one that they have yeah yeah
0: yeah, there, there's a bunch of these um, pub sub type things or, or, you know, basically sources, we'll say sources for real-time data. And so you've written kind of adapters for a lot of these different sources. And so as long as people are using one of these, you know, kind of standard things, then they can, they can try out Materialize. Yeah.
1: And the goal for sure uh, is to show up from our part, show up with as many of these points of integration as we can reasonably manage with, with the team that we have. So you know if you can pull data Kafka is, is the easy one at the moment kinesis has uh, some interesting characteristics that make it a bit harder to show people the data and be correct and like show them the same data again a second time if it crashes and starts up again but but for example also there's some recent work uh, to pull data out of a out of postgres as a as a read replica essentially so to use the replication protocol out of just a postgres instance and say like if you have your data in postgres material is going to attach to that
0: oh that makes sense yeah so, so stepping back a bit, looking at you know someone who's in high school or college, and and uh, you know maybe they have some very very limited SQL, like maybe they've written uh, um, you know they've they've made some MySQL queries on a startup, you know a small project, a hobby project. Um, how can they get started with? Uh, materialize and and is there sort of a free tier or what's a way for for students and hobbyists to learn more
1: oh absolutely i mean you can definitely um materialize is um source available and and very nearly as available as we can make it um it's it's bsl licensed so basically anyone can go and grab it and as long as you aren't building a competing database as a service style product you're you know free to use it for whatever you want Um, and you can cool. you know, go go grab the code, build it. We have Docker images that, that we should push out each time we successfully build something. Uh, and you can just grab this down, pull it down to your laptop. You don't need any complicated Apache infrastructure. You don't need Zookeeper up and running, any of that stuff. It's literally a single binary. You turn it on, you can you, you connect to it as if it were Postgres. So if you have a, a terminal and you, you use psql, which is sort of standard way to shell into to Postgres, you can use that to connect to materialize and uh, if you don't have Kafka up and running, you can point it at a, like a file, for example, and you can uh, you know append rows uh, of, of let's say text, uh, a bunch of different formats, but append rows of text to it to the file and see the results continue to update there. Um, this is one of the sorts of interrupt that you know it's a little janky, but this is how folks are prototyped some things where you, just, you have a file on your laptop that's continually scraping some some other you know, source of data on the internet, appending stuff to the file, and then materializes essentially tailing that file. Right? It, it's watching for changes to it. And anytime new data show up, it'll push them into the pipeline and update all of your queries. And you can do all of this without oh, complicated cool. enterprise infrastructure or anything. It's just on your laptop. This is how I use Materialize a lot, to be totally honest.
0: Oh, that makes sense. It's kind of like a, you could use it as kind of like a tail on steroids.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. Like if, if you're used to using, I don't know, like AUK or something like that to do a little bit of data munging through your CSVs and needed something more advanced than that. Like AUK is great at what it does, I use awk a lot. But if you're like, "Geez, I really need to take these five CSVs and find things present in here and not present in there, get the distinct these things back out, yada uh, yada yada," something SQL like, um, yeah, you can totally use to do that and and keep things up to date as data change. If that's if that's exciting to you,
0: that is really really cool. Yeah, that is that is really. Let, let me just give a bit of tech background and feel free to kind of correct any any records here because this is a uh, this is just shooting from the hip here, but. So a bit of background. So there's, uh, you know, in Unix there's tail. So you can have a big text file. You do tail file, you get the last 10 lines, right? Simple enough. There's also tail-f. If you do tail-f, instead of just giving you the last 10 lines, it will actually just listen to that file just forever. And anytime a line is added, appended to that file, tail will print it out. So think of tail-f as like this monitor that's uh, just listening for changes and writing them out. Um, there's also a bunch of other Unix commands, like there's awk and there's sed and there's jq. Um, all of these are ways of extracting data. So if, you, if, if your file is um, rows of uh, JSON objects, so every line in your file is a JSON object, you could you could pipe that over to jq and you could pull out one of the entries, one of the keys in that object, right? Um, if your file is just is rows of text and maybe there's a timestamp you're interested in, you can use tr and set and awk and these other tools to pull out you know, that timestamp. But then, you know, as soon as things start to get complicated, like maybe you need to keep a rolling histogram or something like that, you know, you're really kind of stuck. I mean, at that point, I mean, you could try doing something with Python. Uh, you know, at that point, you're basically writing a Python program that reads from standard in and. You know, as soon as you jump in a Python, you're writing a lot of code and, and et cetera, et cetera. So so you know, SQL would be really attractive. Um, you know there's a lot of times where I've converted things to or I've just loaded things into a SQLite database just so I can run queries. And it takes a long time. You have to transform the data, especially if it's just flat text. Um, and so you know, materialize you know, running it locally is is a really, really attractive alternative. Um, you could have a materialize that's tailing, you know, CSV, or a I think it's called a JSON-L, where there's a JSON object per line, a JSON-L format, and do more complicated things like groups and and uh, windows and all of that um, without having to, you know.
1: That's, that sounds absolutely correct. I I realize I say tail a lot, and we say tail a lot inside materialize, but dash f is actually, you're right, absolutely the exact specific use of tail that we should be thinking of where...
0: Yeah, I mean, there's tail the verb, and then there's tail the yeah. command, right? I think, yeah, tail the command is just this one-shot thing.
1: But I think you're, you're totally right that they um, one of the things we've seen a lot of interest from f- folks uh, about are not even necessarily big data, uh, anything in particular. Th- those folks are interested, of course, but but there are other folks who are just putting together, like, let's just call them web apps or something like that. Things, mm-hmm. you know, that um, I suppose at the moment, they'd be using something like Firebase to get told about changes to their data but in fairly primitive, elemental ways, you know, like they, maybe they pass a filter, and you get to see records that pass the filter, and that might then prompt them to redraw a web page or do some work like that. And materialize is, is pretty appealing, and you then you get to have the same experience except you push a more interesting query through uh, through to the server. Essentially, And you could say this is wonderful, but you know, just only show me when a particular you know, more complicated property happens. You know, show me when you know new distinct users show up or you know, someone logs in after five minutes later than they had ever previously logged in um, things like this, that yeah, these people don't necessarily have terabytes of data to work on, but it's really handy to have someone save them the pain of writing either, you know, the Python or the JavaScript or the, you know, the whatever it is that is handwritten bespoke code to try to put together a thing that does the not necessarily very complicated task of figuring out when should I tell someone that a new thing has happened and is well, sort of popular in that space, at least, as as an idea. Like, why, why can't we have this for other classes of programming, essentially? SQL and big data is, is great, but there's lots of other people who deal with um, reactive uh, applications, essentially. They're trying to you know, build whatever, like, literally React-style web pages that you want to express what it should look like, the data might change. Why can't the computer system take care of all of this for me? So, like, the bug, I think, is getting out there for, in terms of people expecting even wanting but but eventually expecting that their system can actually take care of all of these updates for them they don't have to handwrite a whole bunch of triggers and weird callbacks and stuff like that
0: yeah that makes a ton of sense i mean i think one of the biggest um i think challenges or biggest say like like mistakes that people make when they're starting out is um is is using is using a programming language or maybe another way of saying is using something like Python or C instead of using you know Unix commands and and SQL. Um I think that uh you know I know when I was when I was going to college um you know I kind of thought oh well SQL that's for uh you know that's for for uh you know people with real jobs yep. you know like <laughs> I'm I'm a PhD student. Uh I, so I if, if I needed to uh you know read one column out of a CSV I would just start us uh, uh you know into main and writing c++ and that that made me extremely unproductive you know and i i think that that is a it's it's a lesson that's that's super super important and and having the ability to do real time um yeah i think there's a massive massive tail of folks who um could make uh, really really good use of something like that that just don't know about This it is
1: a, there's a computer science principle actually that that uh, gives name to this, this thing called Oosterhut's Dichotomy, where uh, this is, I think, John Oosterhut at, at Stanford who proposed essentially this, roughly two types of programming languages, right? There's sort of this productivity level language that's a bit like, I don't know, AUK would be a good example, or SQL. You know, you can use it to get your job done as quickly as possible. And then these more systems programming languages, let's call them like C++ or something, which is, let's say you want to build one of these tools, right? Like someone actually has to build build the things, um, and if you know one of each yeah. of these languages, that's pretty good, right? Like only knowing a productivity language or a, or a systems language, you're going to have some limitations either because you only know C++ and you spend all of your days trying to open files and read lines and stuff like that. Or if, if you only know SQL, it's a little hard to, like, to invent a new thing, essentially. If, if SQL isn't doing what you want, uh, you're kind of uh, in, in trouble at that point and need to get someone else to help you. But if you, if you know one of each of these things and can move between them, that's a really good place to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Cool, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, this is amazing. So folks out there, you know, we should definitely, I'll give it a shot. I think folks out there should definitely grab um, Materialize. So I know there's Docker. Docker's usually pretty heavyweight, but are there like just standalone, you know, statically compiled uh, binaries for different OS? Yeah,
1: we've, um, hopefully I'm not screwing this up, but I think we have them. Uh, we have like an get repo. There's, I believe, uh, we have it at times. I should make sure it's up to date, but home, homebrew versions of these things—you know—you just grab the co- the code and build it from source if if you're that sort of person. I I should double check all of the package managers we have, though. I think there's a few that we for sure keep up to date, and some that we might have uh, either let slip or lost some traction with.
0: Yeah, I mean, as someone who has—I have a, a package in in a bunch of these package managers, and it's it's so difficult. I mean, I'm currently right now. I have I have an issue on Ubuntu 18 but it works on uh all the other ubuntu's and uh you know 10 different other os's and so it just it just like it like never ends <laughs> like there's always like something that breaks somewhere yeah. it's and, it's a uh, real job keeping I that i think up to one day. of these yeah. yeah one of these days someone needs to write some way to automate that um but that's going to be a challenge cuz uh, they're all so different
1: i mean i'm sure someone has has written that thing but it's only supported on some of the os's so you can only use it in some yeah, i mean it's it's one of these yeah, you know, like the XKCD cartoon about like there are 14 competing standards. We should, we should invent a new one that encapsulates all of them. Um, yeah. Now there's 15. And now yeah, there's yeah. 15.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. Yeah. I guess, you know, that thing is probably Snapcraft, which, uh, which doesn't have enough market penetration. Like I don't think they cover windows. And so, uh, yeah, you're right. You can't really, I mean, maybe you could lower your number of things, but you can't get it down to one. Cool. So let's, let's jump into, into materialize as, as a company. Um, so what is a day like for a, a scientist or an engineer and materialize? Like how, you know, specifically like, how is it you know, everyone kind of, or I guess pre COVID, let's say everyone drove into work, you know, had a cubicle or, or has a bullpen. Um, but is there something kind of unique about uh, life at materialize?
1: Well, we are we are in New York city, so no one, no one drove anywhere. Um, you know, you would you would uh, <laughs> okay, well, you, um, you know, hop into your uh, uh, metal cylinder and, and be propelled, uh, you know, from one end of the city to the other. But um, yeah, no, it was. Um, it's. I mean, it's changed. I guess it's part of the problem. So I'm trying to get a, a snappy way to um, to characterize it. But er- early days, it was. You know, we're all basically in within ten feet of each other, and uh, there's a bunch of rapid prototyping and, and sort of turnover where like I, i'd put together some code and then hand it over to someone else and they'd come back and say like oh this doesn't you know this isn't correct from seeing. okay well you know let's iterate on it There was a lot of you know dynamic energy where things are randomly changing and we we're trying stuff out um as, as we've gotten bigger this has cooled down a little bit in that people go go crazy if you just randomly change what they're working on while they're working on it so you know we have I mean, sorry. This is not unique to Materialize, but you know, a process now of like sort of clear no, goal setting, of sense, so. stuff like that, trying to figure out. Uh, you know, for example, in turning on the, the cloud product, um, what are the steps we still need to do before we're we're comfortable putting that in front of people? Uh, you know, folks have nicely carved up bits of work where we're pretty comfortable. I mean, if the work gets done, it doesn't necessarily matter uh, how it gets done. You don't need to be sort of button seat uh, for any particular hours of the day or anything like that um depends a little. like You know, the cadence changes a little bit. Sometimes something new and exciting uh, gets put out there, and it's it's worth having you sit around for a little while to see did anything catch on fire, or help out people who don't understand uh, exactly what you did. But
0: but generally speaking, you, uh, what's the coolest uh, offsite that you folks have done? Well,
1: uh, well so we haven't we haven't done too, we we've, we've got a few, and I'll, I'll name my favorite one. But uh, we haven't done too many because uh, it's just about a year, um, and then. Uh, and then COVID happened. So. oh yeah, uh, that's right. It's not too and much. There's time. Not any offsite since then. We desperately want to do one, but we've done we've done two. Basically, we've, we went to upstate New York and did some hiking. This is when we were about five or six people. And uh, I don't know, it's, you know, I would say fairly stereotypical, but super fun. You know, like hiking during the day and then then Smash Brothers uh, at night, and you know, some name oh, calling no, awesome. and some whiskey and stuff like that. But. Uh, this it was just totally appropriate for for who we were and what we wanted to do at the time. Some folks went rock climbing, like everyone was just happy to get out of the city and just sort of stretch their legs in uh, uh, in the outdoors and that was great. Um, and then come, I think it was February actually. Um, before anything got, got especially weird, we actually we went on a essentially a skiing trip though it was up in Vermont and it was raining rather than snowing. And you know, we was just mostly getting some time out of the standard work environment. Where you still get to be social with your colleagues. You get to, you know, it reinforces the fact that these are actual humans, uh, not just people who write annoying comments on your on your PR or something like that and just chill with chill yeah, with people. Spend some time socializing that uh doesn't have to be in a bar or drinking or something like that. It can just be pretty mellow taking walks or uh just over dinner.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think uh um yeah, I think with COVID it's a challenge. I mean, most of our I guess quote unquote off sites have been uh just playing video games. We just take yeah. some time out and yeah. play some games together, um, play, play a bit of Counter-Strike or something.
1: I, it's, it's a little complicated because during COVID, I would, I would love to do this, have like a virtual offsite, though it feels like a very weird thing to require of people. Like it's it's one thing to say, like we're all getting in yeah. a yeah. car and we're going somewhere awesome. and we basically like, okay, fair enough. Um, but if you tell them like, we're all taking next week and we're not going anywhere interesting, but you got to log on and play some video games or something like that, and and a lot of the folks are like well, I'd rather rather do something else. To be totally <laughs> honest, and it's hard to. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, you you love to, you know, take some time off of work to get people a bit more social and interactive, but it's a bit hard to tell them like, you know, your time, which is uh, scarce at this at this moment, uh, needs to be spent uh, screwing around with us playing Scattergories online or something like that.
0: Yeah, it is. It is super awkward. I think it's a it's a real challenge. Um... And yeah it's a fine line you have to walk between uh you know uh if if you make it kind of let's say too cat or if you don't if you don't hype it up and promote it then people won't show up but then if you make it mandatory then it kind of feels like you're in the show the office right yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so there's some fine line there
1: so we had we had a holiday party for example which uh was done virtually and uh, you know straddle this line pretty pretty well i guess like you know we it wasn't strictly speaking mandatory but everyone was definitely encouraged to come and and folks leaned into that and you know got dressed up and made their own fairly nice dinners and showed them off on zoom and stuff like this and this felt pretty good like it felt good that it wasn't you know a now mandatory sit and look in a camera and have dinner together which is not nearly as exciting (laughs) as you know we're all gonna go out and have some some cocktails and then a nice dinner
0: yeah one thing my team hasn't done this but another team uh I think it was like HelloFresh. Yeah, there's this thing called HelloFresh where they'll deliver ingredients to cook a meal and it's just enough ingredients to make a very specific meal. And so they um, they uh, delivered this to everyone's house on the same day. And then everyone, um, you know, set up a, uh, their portal device or their phone on a stand or something like that. And we all, uh, I mean, they all just kind of cooked together. I thought that was really clever.
1: I like the idea a lot, though I gotta say, like the same sort of problems creep up, especially uh you know, if there are folks in New York who, who you know, so, some folks there at least, you know, kitchens are not not the centerpiece of the apartment, and if you tell them like, unfortunately, you're gonna have to cook your own dinner tonight, um, you know, no no ordering in. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, It's in the interest of the company that that you cook your own dinner and eat what you make. Uh, it almost sounds like punishment. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's really fun. I like cooking. Yeah, no,
0: I never. Yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I also really love cooking is it kind of shows how, uh, you know, we all kind of like bring our own biases, right? Like I never would have thought that, but when you put it in that perspective, it totally makes sense. Right. I bet there's some people who, uh, were just like, like what, you know, what I don't, you know, like my kitchen is just like this stack of, of, uh, of, of boxes.
1: Yeah. I mean, same thing. Our first offsite was this hike, hiking stuff in upstate New York and I could, I, I loved it. I think that's, I love being out in the woods and running around and stuff like that, but I could totally imagine there's some other folks who are like, why, why is this is not what I thought of when I thought it was of fun, I was thinking we we're going to sit in a chair and drink some beer or something. And uh, it's different <laughs> yeah. structure for folks, I suppose, but like, this, I suppose, again, this is one of these things that there's an art to doing it and it's it's not necessarily a thing that's super easy to fake. So I'm, I'm impressed when people do it well of how do we bring together a bunch of people who have, you know, different, different goals, different ideas of fun and nonetheless, get them to connect. Yeah. When you can do that, that's great.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. So are you folks, uh, hiring like either interns or full-time or anything? Oh, totally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, everyone, anyone who's interested should, uh, should, should reach out. Um, the, uh, I think generally the answer is like, is, is yes. Like if you have a particular affinity for this, this sort of thing um, we, you know, we're interested um, for sure, for sure in interns, you know, all across, I think all across the spectrum of uh, engineering background. There's not, I don't think any particular thing where we said like, no, no, we just need to stop hiring this, that, or the other thing.
0: That makes sense. And so post COVID the office is in New York city. And so, so people should, uh, uh, you know, uh, if people are interested, that's one of the things they should expect that, that they would uh, head over to we have We
1: have actually several locations now and we have we have people, sorry, several locations is too strong. <laughs> We've hired remote people who are not going to be moving to New York. Uh, you know, folks are in California, Got folks it. are okay. in Europe, uh, stuff like that. So that's it's definitely on the table. I think, you know, we're excited by all of this. There's a management overhead associated with it. So, so the engineering management, for example, for sure has the ability to say like, no, like we don't know how to handle someone in this time zone um, and I don't want to wake up at... At two in the morning to do their uh, their one on ones, uh, so there's a, a bit of a pushback. Yeah, makes sense. if they're not in an existing time zone that we have. Um, we'll need to figure out how to manage that growth. But I, I think if if you're interested and excited about this sort of thing, I think reaching out is 100 the right thing to do, and we can try to figure out you know if not now when or uh, or see what makes sense.
0: Cool. And so for folks who are interested in you know grabbing a copy of Materialize, trying it out, like we said, it's. Super, super accessible. You can get it from from you know the, an, an apt repo or brew or whatever. But but definitely check out the website first and learn learn about it. You can go to materialize.com. Um, it's materialized with a Z. So I think I think that's the American version. I think materialized with an S is the British version. That's right. And something like the, that. the
1: main interesting point, I guess, is that there's if you go to materialize with an S, there's a company there. They're a different company. Um, and you might have a very different experience if you apply for an internship uh, there. You might
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so they're actually a fish farm. No, <laughs> I have no idea, but, uh, uh, yeah, materialize with a Z and, uh, you know, you can, I'm sure there's a, uh, careers, uh, page. You could check all of that out. There's a place, place where you can get, um, you know, the, the latest copy of materialize and try it out. If you, if you have any data that's structured on your machine, you can try out materializing and, and, uh, Actually, so one that just to be clear, you can like run Materialize over a file, right? I mean, if you're trying totally, to test it.
1: totally, yeah, text files. Um, like a CSV is a classic thing that you can. Um, we have, we have a few worked examples on the web page, and one of them, literally, as long as you have an internet connection, uh, just starts w getting data from uh, from Wikipedia about what are people editing, for example, at the moment. Just starts pulling that down to your computer and and has a built in query that asks who are the top uh, contributors uh, as as this data set evolves, cool. and it's just. You know, grabbing the data continually once you start the the, the little tasklet. And, uh, you know, there wasn't necessarily any data on your computer beforehand, but there is now. And you're just sort of looking at that as it evolves. And you could do some other crazy stuff with that, too, and play with it.
0: Yeah. Cool. It makes sense. And so if people want to talk to you about, about Materialize, they can also um, at you um, at Frank McSherry on Twitter
1: absolutely and, uh,
0: we'll post all of that in the uh, show notes
1: yeah yeah no for sure um we're definitely active on twitter i mean i thing that i i, I didn't uh, mention i suppose is that if you go to materialize there's also for example a bunch of blog posts stuff that we've written uh just i would say slightly more conversational content about what's interesting or different going on in here and it's it's a great place to look to sort of you know form some questions for example like like this looks great but uh and then reaching out in person is, is totally fine like that's i spend a bunch of my time Trying to you know help people work people through like what's different here or I don't see how you can do that or whatnot and it's a great thing to do in public a bunch of people learn from it who didn't necessarily know to ask or couldn't figure out how to frame their their questions
0: yeah that makes sense I think you know another thing is is for folks out there who are trying to get into maybe like you know uh, database engineering you know the best thing to do is to get your feet wet you know using some of these tools and at some point you might kind of be scratching your head saying you know I don't really know how to do this. And materialize and i don't really know how to do it any other way either you know maybe i'll write a plugin or maybe i'll fork it and make some changes and the next thing you know frank uh comes knocking on your door saying hey this is some pretty cool stuff why don't you come work at materialize so i mean you know, jump into these projects and 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 dive in and the the source it's totally open source uh so, um, so so, it's an amazing way to kind of learn it. It sounds like it's a very powerful tool for just about anybody. It's
1: I would definitely say Materialise, uh, I was about to say more than other things, but maybe that's not fair. Um, but it's Materialise has this cool property that I've, so far, that you can do some pretty interesting things with it, some unexpected things, stuff we hadn't planned for, for sure. So I think, you, you know, maybe, well, as much as other projects out there, getting your feet wet and starting to use it often leads to something surprisingly cool and interesting. And I don't, maybe Materialise is interested in it, but... But even just your friends, are like posting on Hacker News or something, there's there's some cool things that you can do with Materialize that uh, many of us didn't expect ahead of time and didn't know. Like, oh well, this I didn't realize this was the main problem in, you know, sports statistics or something like it's just something we don't know anything about. And you're like, hey I just put it together and now it does a thing, and, and everyone's super stoked. Like you can you can build some pretty cool and new different things, and telling people about those is wonderful as well. But I think you're right. Uh, just to sort of loop back around a the thing there, like getting your feet wet whether it's with Materialize or, or other data platforms uh, is a great way to start getting a handle on like what's hard, what's easy, what do you find to be most, most unpleasant? A lot of the folks, the engineers who are at Materialize are there because like, literally just asked some folks recently, they're, they're there because this was painful in their previous lives. And if, if they can make this better, they find that really exciting. But getting that context for like, what's hard, what's easy, what would I like to make better uh, is is invaluable.
0: That makes sense. And so, for people who have never worked with SQL before, what do you recommend to them they, Is there are there some does Materialize link to some like kind of generic SQL tutorials, or is there your favorite tutorial that you point people to? I
1: I don't think we do link to a generic SQL tutorial. That's a really interesting point. Actually, we have documentation on the SQL that that we support. Um, so it's as as if Materialize had invented SQL, of course that's not the case. But that's the way the docs are sort of structured. <laughs> yeah. I'm not it's a it's a really good question actually. I came to SQL in a very non-standard roundabout way, having done a whole bunch of data parallel computation first, and then looped back around and tried to map SQL onto it. so i and I wouldn't recommend that path i I liked it a lot, but it took many years. I'm not entirely sure there there's a bunch of like I think for example, Marcus Winand has a uh, fairly well regarded introduction to SQL and sort of and also scaling up uh, SQL stuff. Um, I don't know the webpage off the top of my head, but I could try to. Try to track that down. Uh, I have to imagine there's good and bad SQL tutorials. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, we can add anything to the uh, to the show notes. I'll, I'll track can, it down and and uh,
1: I'll I'll hand it out and we can make sure it's linked.
0: Yeah, I also like you. I uh, I kind of learned SQL through uh, yeah. I was basically at a place where a bunch of the code was written in SQL, and so that was kind of my way of getting thrown into it. And then I kind of realized post hoc, like, oh, I should have learned this a decade ago. And so uh, yeah. I actually uh I'm pretty sure we've done a show on SQL. It might be dated now, although you know the standard doesn't doesn't change very often. So it's still relevant. Um, but but uh in that in that episode, I'll see if I can link to that one as well. Um, we we'll have a bunch of references. So so yeah, definitely, you know, check out uh you know, learn SQL, I guess. That's step one. Uh really, really important, super useful. Um, you know, you know, like SQL light is very, very accessible. Materialize is very, very accessible and they will make your life so much easier. Um, and then, and then after you learn SQL, um, you know, check out materialize and, and, and start using it. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, um, I think we can kind of put a bookmark here, but, uh, but Frank, that was a really, really amazing, you know, an in- inspiring talk. I mean, I, I feel like I want to try, uh, I'm going to go and grab materialize right now and I have some, some files that I want to, uh, See, see, kind of how it works on them, and I think the idea of having kind of a SQL query that works on streaming and running that same one on batch, and not having to write two of everything—you know—all of that is is super, super appealing. I think people uh, out there have learned a lot and uh, in the past hour, and so I really appreciate uh, your time and, and you coming on the show. Oh,
1: it's not a problem at all. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and actually, the questions are great and really sort of draw out for me at least what's what's exciting and, and sort of stimulating out what we're doing, why we're doing it, and hopefully, uh, you know the listeners some fraction of them agree and like, yeah, that' that does sound like a thing that I either need or really want or something like that. Um, that sort of then resonates with us uh, for building it,
0: yeah, totally. Thanks again. Um, you know for folks out there, um, we're working on doing uh, two shows a month, so you might be surprised to see this show, considering we we already uh, have uh, an April show, so you might be surprised when you're seeing another April show. And so that's that's what's going on there. We're going to. We've been working with some really, really nice folks who have been helping us with a lot of the post processing, and that's allowed us to um, you know, ultimately produce more content, which is which is super exciting. And and the reason why we can do that is uh, because of uh, you know your ongoing support. So um, you know, thank you so much, folks out there who are subscribed on Patreon and people who found out about Audible through the show through our show. So um, so thank you all so much for all of your support, your emails. Um, we get a, a whole bunch of new ideas. Over the past few weeks, that we've added to our list, so there's, there's uh, the content is still growing faster than, than we can consume it, which is really, really important and great. And uh, everyone have a great uh, rest of the month, and we'll see you all next time.
1: Music
0: by Eric Farmdollar.